Hello, and welcome to Doctor Who 50 Years Ago, a show that looks back to the episode that aired in 1970 and looks at the differences between then and now. This week, the last episode of Season 7, where everything does not explode. I am Ben. I am Luke. And I'm Nick. And here we are, and here we go, into the news from 1970. There's only one bit of news. That being, on Thursday the 18th of June, the UK general election of 1970 comes and goes. Contrary to 99% of opinion polls, the Conservatives reverse the position and secure a 30-seat majority. It is a victory for Edward Heath and defeat for Harold Wilson. Why was this so? There are a mixture of factors which are bandied about. A bad set of balance of payments and inflation figures just before the election? Possible. Despondency because England lost in the World Cup quarterfinals? Unlikely. The continued noise from the press saying Labour were going to win, meaning that Labour voters did not vote as much as they did, including 18-year-olds for the first time? Also likely. Support for Enoch Powell, the very right-wing and loud, prominent Conservative Party politician, with his harsh critique on immigration, to put it mildly? This is also highly likely. This is the election about immigration, so say historians. It was the idea that people were supporting Powell's party rather than Heath's party. Equally ironically, victory sets back Powell's career quite a lot because a defeat in the 1970 general election would have propelled Powell to greater heights in the Conservative Party than where he ended up, somewhere in Northern Ireland. Immigration remains an issue with the British public to this day, to the point the current government is happily chirping about the end of free movement. Not that we can move currently anyway, or not that we're meant to. Ultimately, this sets the stage for the 1970s to begin for Britain. Heath's chances of radically changing Britain explode, along with the heart of his chosen Chancellor, just a month into office. The economy recedes, and the trade unions once again prove their power and popularity over a floundering government, and plunge Britain into darkness when necessary. This is a darkness which is occasionally lit up by bombs and violence, as the British Army fights the IRA in Northern Ireland, killing civilians in the process, and the IRA bombs kill British civilians on the mainland in return. The economics of the world also wobble quite hard. Inside the Conservative Party, less moderate politicians like Sir Keith Joseph and Margaret Thatcher decide it's time to put down failing Keynesian economics and the post-war consensus, and instead push their neoliberal agenda as soon as the old guard of Heath Wilson can be put down, to the point that we're now living in the age of Thatcher than the age of post-war consensus. And that is some of the importance of the 1970 general election. I agree with Ben. <laughs> Facts. <laughs> Ten years after the great leadership debates that propelled the Liberals into minor stardom, and you bring up that again... So, yeah, the 1970s is a wobbly, punk rock, violent world, and that's probably going to be the theme of my summings up of Inferno of Season 7 and of the world. I agree with your analysis here of the election, and that, yeah, you can see that this is the beginning of the end of that immediate post-war period, like about 30 years or so after the war, and 
the seeds are being laid for the period that we've lived in up to now. Potentially, we've now reached the end of this era with uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and inevitable depression. Who knows? I think what this does show with Enoch Powell is that it's conducive to landslides to take to take an extreme view to really set yourself apart from everyone else and it's also good not to be overly specific about what it is you're going to do you're selling an idea and you're selling difference you got what you like now wow i bet you don't this thing's going to be completely different and those people who are doing it wrong they're not going to be doing it wrong anymore and everyone sort of nods along we can see a lot of parallels between this one and the recent general election of 2019. Yeah, you're right. It's it seems to be every time there's a landslide victory, it's it's because some, the person coming into power, well, one, the government is kind of normally flailing and falling apart, but also there is um, it's a simple idea that's being sold, isn't it? You know, like when Blair comes in, he's sweeping away the old conservatives. It's all gone a bit stale. He's coming in bringing change. Whatever. And then here with uh, the 2019 election, you had conservatives promising to get Brexit done. And then that was this idea that they sold to people. And when everyone else was all a bit more muddled about what it was going to happen, they had a clear message. It was easy to understand. One of my favourite quotes is by Nick Robinson after he was talking to John Major about his waterways plan. He had a list of 10 things he wanted to do to fix Britain's waterways. And Nick Robinson said, well, what are they? And John Major said, it doesn't matter. The point is, we're going to fix the waterways and there's not nine or 11 ways we're going to do it. So it's that right mix of ambiguity and a hook. Yeah, ultimately, politicians are sort of, they're salespeople, but for uh, of ideas. Hmm. The language of elections and indeed the entire purpose of the elections 50 years ago and nowadays and indeed the effects it has on Britain. That was the news and now we shall get into Inferno, episode 7, aired Saturday the 20th of June 1970. The end comes close with a bit of panic and worry but we've learnt our lessons from the parallel universe, so we won't die in the inferno or be turned into primordial zombies. So everybody's happy. I'm happy. Ugh. Are you happy, Luke and Nick? Ugh. <laughs> Ugh. I hate how this serial ends. I hate I, it. I hate it. I was watching that final scene and I thought, oh, I bet Luke hates this scene. <laughs> it's like... Oh... Everything gets wrapped up all nicely like and Liz is laughing and the doctor goes off arm in arm with the brigadier as he's covered in gunk and oh what a cheerful bunch we are. Everything got wrapped up. Ugh. The whole point of how this season has been adult has been about moral grey and about how real people are under threat. It hasn't been about wrapping everything up in a neat little bow. Where Terence Dix and um, Barry Letts are starting to get some control. Because, I mean, they only came in part way through this season, didn't they? Sorry, I'm just double checking because I, 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 I had a sneaking suspicion that this, this final scene might have been Barry Letts produced for 
you know, some semblance of happy ending in this ridiculous, tumultuary, horrific fascist universe, parallel universe story. But I have a sneaking suspicion looking at my tome that um, it was written by Don Horton. Well, I just think that this this scene just feels like this is them. Barry Letts and Terry Six kind of, you know, marking a line under and saying, right, we, we, we've done the adult season and now we're going to go on to the unit family stuff now. It's a marked difference from Spearhead from Space, yes. Yeah. I, I think what makes Silurian so adult is that grey area of even the Doctor isn't properly right here and you really got to sort of think about it and dig into it. And it all comes down to your own take on it. And there's that gut punch at the end. I don't get that at all from Terror of the Autons. I love it because it's cool and schlocky. But I don't think it's this thing that Mind of Evil episode three is. Well, that is where it goes dramatic. But I wouldn't say that Terror of the Autons is following on from season seven in any way. What this episode, though, does seem to suggest is a receding tide in the adult, dare we say, horrific nature of season seven towards the more audience-orientated unit family spectacle that we will see throughout the rest of John Pertwee's era. So let's look at this receding tide in greater detail. The Doctor succeeds in making it back to the normal universe, in inverted quotes, in a fully comatose state. Liz discovers him and makes Sergeant Benton inform the Brigadier. There are three hours to go before Penetration Zero, and Professor Starman still wants to go faster and damned safety margins. Both Petra and Sutton are appalled and try to persuade him otherwise, but he's being mutated by the green slime. The infrastructure and tempers are pushed, and the former breaks. The comatose Doctor hears the sirens in the background and mutters the solution he saw in the parallel universe, reverse the systems. You're actually almost unnerved by just the suddenness of that, where you've seen this utter destruction, and then it just cuts to him on the ground. It's not actually a cliffhanger where you're like, oh, I feel happy. You know what I mean? It, is, it doesn't feel like a victory or anything. Yeah, the Doctor isn't able to save them, and it's really shown through that hard cut. Because I've always thought they shouldn't have repeated the cliffhanger, they would just sort of start it with him completely silent. But you're right. The loudness versus the quiet really does slam home the lack of hope. The story of Inferno really ends with episode six. And then we can say this is the end of it. And then everything else after this is kind of it feels tonally quite different, doesn't it, really, from this point onwards? It's definitely where a play for today would have ended. Yeah, absolutely. Because then you'd have a dumbfound audience going, well, what on earth are we doing now? Mm-hmm. And therefore, they'd be given the chance to soak up the fact that this fascist parallel universe went to complete destruction, despite the best efforts of the time traveling alien telling them not to. The Doctor begins and ends the season in a coma. I think it might be something to do with themes of powerlessness throughout season seven. But it is sort of a recurring trope of the Pertwee era that the Doctor's on the ground and he whispers something and everyone rushes to his rushes down and they put his ear to his mouth and it's like polarity reverse brigadier he wants us to reverse the polarity and then they use the screwdriver also i don't know but 
I think at least here, maybe it is worth pointing out. It could just be lazy writing, but I think it it shows the Doctor in a position of weakness that isn't seen quite in the same way before. Yeah, I'd agree. The Doctor has seemed more impervious and uh, uh, in the 60s, doesn't he? But here, they've definitely gone a long way to humanise him. I say that in as much as Obviously, uh, at the same time of making officially confirming him as an alien, they've also humanised him. They've, they've made him seem more... Maybe partly to reverse the decision to identify his species and go for the live forever barring accidents ideal. Mm. Introducing stakes when they accidentally removed them. Very interesting indeed. And one might um, ask for it to be reintroduced in Doctor Who in the year 2020. You mean light candles and pray like a monk for it to be introduced? Mm. <laughs> yes, it would be nice to know that the Doctor has only a finite number of regenerations. Oh, well. Oh, well. <laughs> uh, that, that is, of course, our reaction to Series 12. Oh, well. <clears throat> I know. I know. <clears throat> Liz informs the drill head of what needs to be done, and Petra and Sutton disobey Starman and perform the act, stopping the disaster, much to his annoyance. The Doctor wakes up to enjoy the company of the Brigadier and Liz, and tells of his experiences, worried about the mutated technician and Starman. He's delighted, however, when an injured Sakif walks in, having survived a car crash brought about indirectly by Starman. Not everything runs parallel, and free will is not an illusion, and it means there's an ability to make a change and save this world. Very interesting points we'll probably talk about. The Doctor comes in and attempts to sabotage the drill head before being taken away by unit soldiers for randomly sabotaging said project. Liz is told to check the computer, and she finds the sabotage and promptly fixes it. Sir Keith, meanwhile, attempts to stop the project and also fails. So Starman here is definitely a villain, isn't he, really? Like, as, as it's worn on, especially once he becomes infected with the, the green goo, he's definitely a bad guy. And he's, so he uses rhetoric of, like, saying, an army of experts, we don't need your advice, or whatever, you know, that sort of thing. And it's interesting that that's considered, like, oh, that's what I think a bad guy would say, and yet it's quite common rhetoric nowadays, isn't it, about rubbishing experts well until the pandemic it was quite a common rhetoric wasn't it to poo-poo uh, experts well among what sort of people I, I guess it was amongst people who didn't like what the experts said and that would vary depending on different fields so with climate change or the economy or international relations whatever I, I guess it's like people have taken to the people have opinions and if if the facts don't agree with them, they change the facts, I guess. It's the it's the introduction of scepticism rather than anti-intelligence and and mm. alternative facts. Yeah, I guess you could say people are more sceptical about everything now, aren't they? Uh, no one uh, trusts in authority is at an all-time low. Well, till the pandemic, it was at an all-time low. We, 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 we as a um, species are socially obese on scepticism. 
Oof. Nice. Because because ultimately, yes, you can have a healthy dose of it, but we've eaten quite a lot of it in the last twenty years, especially. Yes. Yeah. It's 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 not a good thing when nobody trusts anybody's word for anything. That's how we get to where we are now. So it's very interesting to see this point raised in dubious bad guy Starman in an episode of Doctor Who 50 years ago. Starman continues to go mad, sending the technicians packing and closes off the drill control so he can touch the slime and fully mutate into a Primord. The Doctor breaks free of his unit soldiers and runs, only to bump into the mutated technician. He dispatches this Primord with a fire extinguisher before returning to the drill head. The computer says to stop the drilling, as does the Doctor, but Sir Keith needs proof of an emergency. That proof comes as Primord Starman attacks. He's dispatched by fire extinguishers. And it takes a combined computer shutdown and fixing Starman's sabotage before we can finally shut down and save the world with just 40 seconds left before doom. 35 seconds. All right, then. So I think this moment might have the highest profile black man in all of season seven. When Petra is shutting the thing down, there is a black guy there. And he's just sort of standing in the back going, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, well, throughout the... So they've got the same uh, extras that they had in the first few episodes uh, in our universe. Um, and yeah, he's been, they have had a, a a black man throughout the whole of it. So there's a nice upward trend before we once again revert to type in, in literally the next story with um, the strong man. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's nice. Yeah, there's a showing that there's at least a bit. I'm imagining that would have been they would have wanted to get uh, a black actor in to, or a uh, black extra to be kind of progressive and show, you know, this is meant to be in the near future as well, isn't it? So to show, hey, look, we're, we're progressing as a society. You know, we've got women, we've got ethnic minorities working in labs as well. It's not just white yeah, men. Yeah, but we, 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 we must be eternally aware of tokenism. Yeah, I mean, at this point, it is just tokenism. But I guess it's like when you had only a couple of elections before this, literally people saying, if you vote, Labour, you'll get yes. a rude word. Yeah, that one. Um, yes. Um, it, 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 tokenism is about probably the first way you can start to introduce it for some people. Yeah, I, I guess I guess mild neglect is an improvement from utter contempt. Yeah. <laughs> well, it does show that fifty years hence, like if if the only person of colour you had in the in the serial or the episode was just an extra in the background people might get a bit uppity about it they they would they would call out for tokenism wouldn't be happy Mm. yeah one thing that grabbed me was how sir keith gold says i have no authority to intervene it has to be professor stallman's decision and you can make as many as inquiries as you like after we penetrated the earth's crust I don't really have too much to say about this, as it really is just a continuation of something I've been banging on about every single episode about democracy versus the fist of man. But I think it's important to note that at least this time, it's a sort of a setup for a punchline. We have to have concrete evidence that something has happened to Professor Starman. And like on, I don't know, 
like on a game show where it's revealing the prize, the thing comes up and it's Professor Stalin mutated into a primord. Yeah. And I like that that's sort of the, the culmination of this uh, of this thing I've been going on about. I, I found that moment very funny. <laughs> yeah, you're right. This is the most on the nose it gets, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Having done all the full horrors in the parallel universe, this is the remnants of what we can do with the primords, really. They're removed so quickly. The drill shaft is sealed up all the way to the Earth's crust, blimey, and the day is saved. Sir Keith says his goodbyes to the Doctor as he works on the TARDIS console with Liz, having obtained nuclear power from the abandoned project. Sutton and Petra elope together. What a nice ending. The Brigadier warns against working on the TARDIS, and the Doctor flips his lid, calling the Brig an idiot before dematerialising with the console. He immediately crash lands in a rubbish tip, and hastily renegotiates his relationship with the Brigadier, wanting help to get his TARDIS back. Lishaw laughs, and is written out the show immediately off-screen afterwards. The end. The Sutton and Petra eloping together is a bit... Like, everyone's just like, oh, they're all in the car together. Oh, oh, oh lovely. I'm like, mm, really? Mm, well, yeah. it does demonstrate how Sutton is once again a a typical figure because he gets the girl at the end. He's more your traditional swashbuckling hero. Yeah, he's definitely yeah the hero. And it's funny is that the script keeps telling us, oh, everyone likes him. He's such a great guy. But it's like I don't. I don't get that from him when I'm watching it. I don't find he's that likable, but it's like the script seems to think he is. is everyone and, and yet it took an alternative universe and an apocalypse for us to like the alternate version of his character. Well, I thought about that. And if you remember in Spearhead from Space, there's a real disconnect between the poor characters and the more upper class characters. I wonder if because he's slightly more upper class in the parallel universe, we're supposed to like him more there because of that. Mm, perhaps. He, he may be taking the Sakif route. I'm, I'm just wondering, how did they get the drill to work? Because, I mean, if you get start going deep enough into the Earth, you're going to start having problems with your shaft because of, you know, the different the different different rates of rotation as you start getting deep enough in. Yeah, I don't really think that Don Houghton was too concerned about that nick <laughs> no like at all <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh let's just write a story where they don't really fully understand the technical details so you get green goo and sh- shafts that can somehow go all the way down to like the earth's core yeah and it's good who, who wants to stop episode one of inferno so that professor stalin can say ah uh, yes it is very important that I mentioned right now that the drill starts rotating at a different speed right now as we go towards the Earth's crust. As you can see on this diagram, I have properly calculated it, and you can see my calculations in the inlets provided in the Radio Times. That would be terrible. Of course it hasn't changed. Can we move on? This is silly. (laughs) Yeah, well, one thing that has changed, though, is that they they generally try and at least make it try and appear a little bit more accurate. And now, the making of this story in greater detail. Don Horton was a sickly child, so he wrote stories. He was inspired by a drill project in 1964 to penetrate the Mohorovicic discontinuity, also known as the Earth's crust. 
This was the Moho project, doomed because there were differing views on what the goals were to just dig down management and political issues. Also, it's damn expensive. So Don wrote about the project, complete with parallel universe, where the drilling caused the destruction of the world. But it needed to be a seven-parter in season seven and have monsters, so the primords were added. The character of Liz Shaw, created by Derek Sherwin and Peter Bryant, was felt not to have worked for series seven by Barry Letts, so he lets Caroline John go and starts looking for a new regular companion for next season. Broadcast in the summer, the audience figures tail off, but there are a regular five or six million viewers for Inferno, the first intriguing concept story of Doctor Who in the 1970s. Hey, that's unfair. The first intriguing concept story of, of the, the 1970s. 1970s. Uh, well, what about Silurians or oh. Spears in Space? Hmm. Notice I didn't mention Ambassadors of Death, which is... You could. You could say that those... Okay, sci-fi fine. concept story? You, you mm. could argue that those first two were filmed in 1969, maybe? Is that what you were going for, Ben? No, I was thinking more that the parallel universe was the intriguing concept. So therefore, of a sci-fi nature, as opposed to more down-to-earth ground theories that you would see in the Silurians or sciency, spacey things in the Ambassadors of Death. Okay, I, I can accept that. In Silurians, that, that's more about like holding up a mirror to humanity and then will we be able to cooperate or not? And obviously in the end it doesn't happen, but uh, an Ambassadors, I'm like, what if humans are the baddies? Or that's uh, Mitchell and Webb uh, sketch where it's like, what, are, what if we're the baddies? <laughs> um, and then also crossed with like a spy thriller because why not? And then Inferno is is a disaster movie which would become very popular in the 1970s. And then you have the parallel universe kind of give it some sci-fi because otherwise it's without the parallel universe Inferno doesn't work at all. And it just goes to show how remarkably different each one is they were worried that by setting it on earth basically every story would either be mad scientist or uh an alien invasion and they have successfully managed to avoid that haven't they okay so they have the one alien invasion and yes starman i guess is a bit of a mad scientist in inferno but it's like they have managed to avoid falling into that trap of every episode being oh now here's something that's not the autons or here's, I, I mean, you've got not Nider and you've got Starman, but they're not the sole focuses of those stories, are they? No, there are greater things at work in each one. And yeah. despite being set on Earth in the present, de- well, the near future, the, the concepts are all quite different. And each story feels different in terms of it doesn't feel like they're going through the same stuff. Lack of cooperation and powerlessness causing chaos seems to be present in most of the stories and real people being directly under threat is also present as well and i would say in terms of making a statement having those coming together they they seem to dovetail quite well you know people at the top and people doing strange science stuff 
can actually have real damning effects on the world. I'd say that's a pretty, it's almost universally relevant. You can't really pin it directly to the 70s or the 60s, I suppose. And it's interesting that when they come to Earth, this is what they're focusing on. So in Spearhead, we basically have, these are nestines. They come from here. They're, in Terror of the Autons, we find that they look like octopuses in their real form. In Silurians, we get more about their history and where they come from, but not too much more than that. In Ambassadors, it's just some dude on the screen flying about, and the primals are completely unexplained in Inferno, and it's all about the Earth. And I think it's interesting that as we're on Earth, those are the elements that come forward. And I think in terms of making a statement, I've found sort of three things that make season seven a statement. You've got the moral grey area, you've got colour, and the focus is more on real world, explicitly it's on real world issues and away from aliens. I think that's the statement with this season. Hmm. It is ultimately trying to make a greater lasting impact on its first attempt before it gets increasingly washed out, as does the colour, throughout the 1970s. Whilst you've been looking at themes, Luke and Nick, I've been vaguely looking at also those themes as well as contextual aspects, whilst also trying to remember the original aim of this podcast, asking the question, season seven, is it heaven? The answer is yes and generally yes. It's a good mix of stories looking at bureaucracy, paranoia, an interesting take on the Doctor as a renegade stuck on Earth and unable to rebel, and it is therefore a solid season. Rewatching these episodes week on week has made me analyse them in greater detail to their contextual surroundings of late 1969 and early 1970, as you have heard in these series of analytical podcast reviews, I see writers brought in with new ideas, spinning on what the bureaucracy and the military can and can't do, asking what cost and what benefits do scientific progress have on the world and its environment, as well as maintaining old favourite ideals like generational conflict and paranoia. Bringing these analysed elements into the increasingly wobbly world of 2020 has also revealed startling scenes where a virus in an episode of Doctor Who started to play out in the real world with devastating consequences. One hopes that the SpaceX rocket doesn't encounter Martians. Despite a full 50 years, America is trying its very hardest to be exactly as prejudicial to the world, both in military terms and towards its own citizens. So uh, no change there. And if you would like to draw comparisons to Inferno's alternate universe there, I won't stop you. Distrust of governments play a factor in the science, the politics and the pandemic. So I would like to end this podcast, well, my views on Inferno season seven and this podcast with the adage that I continuously quote to bring out a narcissistic view. History doesn't repeat itself, but people always do be they the governors or the governed, the oppressors or the oppressed, the scientists or the environmentalists, the moderates or the extremists, 
and that their inability to just get along nicely is going to cause a lot more hurt and death before we actually bother to try and fix things. That's my take anyway. Well, has Doctor Who ever done such a reinvention of itself? Other than once again having to find its feet in an entirely different television media when it came back in 2005, I can't see one really. I mean, there's revamps in terms of when Moffat took over and when Chris Chibnall took over, but nothing quite as extreme as the move from season six to season seven or from classic to new. Yeah, this is one where they were deliberately going for something. With Moffat and Chibnall, it is definitely building off of what was coming before and it makes total sense. Whereas with this one, they sat down and said, right, it's time to make our own stamp. Do we think a revamp of this kind could ever be done with the new show now? Do you think it will ever, something like this could ever happen again where they do such a dramatic change to the format? Surely it's a good idea to, considering the current state that the show's in. It's kind of begging for some big wild card. I, I would say that probably the best direction to go with Doctor Who at the moment, if you're going to fit it in in the modern TV environment, would be to go down the sort of elongated serialisation thing, where you sort of have a whole season that's kind of... Obviously, because it's Doctor Who, you have to keep some vestige of anthology. But if you're going to revamp it, I would say you do a season-long serial. Or you do, like, 444 or something like that. Because that's kind of what TV is nowadays. And if you, I think you'd be making your mark on the show. You'd kind of be destroying its soul somewhat. But... If you were to do extremely long, essentially four-hour films and do three of them in a season, I think you get something interesting out of it. So long as your script is not Asylum of the Daleks. If there is a four-hour version of Asylum of the Daleks in the next season and I am held responsible, then I don't know what I'd do. For such a timeless concept the concept of reformatting the show is always a tricky and hotly contested one which was seen to be proven to be mildly successful in 1970 and again mildly successful when the show was brought back in 2005 what we noted at the end of the last series of our podcast life depends on change and renewal so let's once again bring up that adage and say that a little bit of change every now and then will always help the show out. It depends how stale the new change gets. Sometimes it can be seven years for Tom Baker. Sometimes it can be less. And that is Doctor Who 50 years ago and what we love to discuss. Thank you very much for watching and listening to this series of the podcast. You can find us on Blogspot, which redirects to the iTunes episodes. You can leave positive comments there, it really helps. You can also find us on Facebook and YouTube, where you can like, comment and subscribe. Who knows, we might be back in four years' time to do season 12 or something. Until then, I've been Ben. I've been Luke. And I've been Nick. Thank you, and goodbye.